that was probably the most hectic time that I've ever been extracted. There was a lot of rounds going off because it was during the day. Obviously, the, the Taliban knew exactly where we were and they knew exactly where the choppers were landing. There was a lot of dust. And everyone had to try and find the right chopper. I remember one guy's radio antenna got shot off. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. happened to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody left. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain was proud of the pain. crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line. Today is my Skype conversation with Reese Dowden. Reese is a former Special Forces soldier, a veteran of the 2nd Commando Regiment. We spoke about Reese's life as a commando, deployment stories, and the power of purpose. Reese Dowden, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the invite, mate. Happy to be here. Reese, where did you grow up? Mate, I grew up in a number of different parts in Queensland. My dad was a police officer for 40 years, so I was born in Gladstone, was there about six years, moved up to Mossman, which is north of Cairns, for about four years and came down to uh, the Sunshine Coast where I spent my teenage years, um, high school, before I joined the Army. I did Army cadets when I was 12 or 13, so always had an interest in the Army, mate, so I was always going to go that way. So was it the cadets that started your interest in the Army or was it before that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think most kids have an interest in, in the military or maybe not so much aspirations, but have some kind of interest watching, you know, movies and, and reading books and so forth, mate. But yeah, when I started cadets is, is when I kind of realised that that was going to be my path. Do you have any military history further up the family tree or are you the first? Both my grandparents were in the army in World War Two and, and dating back to um, World War One as well, mate. My great-grandfathers are in World War One. Uh, one was at Beresheba. World War Two. Uh, they weren't in combat roles, but they were in the military and, and remained in Australia. Did you go in with a specific goal, like special forces in mind, or you just wanted to join and become a soldier? Absolutely, mate. No, I joined specifically uh, at the time when I joined. It was, it was going to be special forces. How did you find your cadet experience in retrospect once you joined the Army? Did it help you with training at all? Absolutely, mate. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. I mean, it was a lot of lot of drill and and I guess getting in your cams and um, you know playing soldier within reason. But when I joined, we were it was quite good. We'd we'd go on camps and we'd we'd be out there navigating. So navigation was a big part of it. Drill was a big part of it. So that set me up well for when I joined, particularly the navigation side of things. And we also got to shoot. You know, we were shooting SLRs um, initially, and then we were using uh, we got to fire the styes as well. So weapons handling was was also helped me greatly uh, before I joined. And then we also did Raytel and, and first aid. So really the basic soldiering skills were, it was, it was a real key key factor in, for me and cadets and then allowing me to transition into the military. So I found that, that part quite easy in, in the basic soldiering skills and then we just developed it further once I was in. So once you're in and through training and all that, tell me about your first few years in the Army. Uh, quite boring, to be honest, mate. I joined, I joined CAV because I thought, I still always had aspirations for 
you know, SF. And then I thought maybe I'll, I'll, I'll learn something, an, another trade, I, I guess, other than infantry before I go SF. That was, that was the plan. So I joined cavalry. And I was in buckets, so the 113s. Um, went through with a bunch of guys through Kapuka and IETs and at the end of IETs um, there was maybe 25 of us everyone got divvied out their units one armoured three four cav when it was around second 14th even and then there was about six of us that really got uh, the (laughs) got shafted really and got sent to a unit called CSU which is a command support unit up in Darwin and our job was to basically we were the first cavalry soldiers that were being posted up there to drive the the ACVs or the armoured command vehicles for all the officers at uh at one brigade up there so wasn't the best posting mate wasn't definitely wasn't what i was expecting and um you know tactic wise and and cavalry wise it really wasn't a good posting because we we weren't doing the you weren't particularly learning your trade of of being a a cavalry soldier yeah not quite the excitement you were looking for (laughs) not at all I know you had the goal of SF in mind, but had you mapped out in your head, I do this many years in CAV, then I can apply for selection? Like, Did you have the path mapped out or was it discovering as you went? Well, as I went, I sort of um, initially I kind of lost the drive and it was probably to do with the, with the unit up there. Initially, we weren't doing a lot of, I guess, cool um, arms corps stuff or, or what I thought I was going to be doing initially in the army. So I just found it quite boring, mate. So I probably lost a bit of the loss, the initial drive of going SF and then did a couple of years up there, managed to get on a ASLAV course and then managed to transfer over. We got a posting over to, to 2CAV, which was a lot better. And I, I got a gunner's position in there. So I ended up being a gunner in there for a couple of years. Um, and then I sort of got, I guess, my drive back and, and, um, motivation back to to go sf and i still wasn't sure if i was going to do it but then i i got down on the first arabic language course uh, down the school of lengths for for three months and that was with um i met a couple of sas guys down there and that sort of really kicked it in in gear for me and and i i really planned out the path from there you discharge from the army though before you end up pursuing the sf route oh no i I didn't i I, before i got out i I applied i tried for sas so you apply for SAS and you get knocked back, or? Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't finish it. I got about three quarters of the way way through it. Picked up a couple of injuries. Um, withdrew from the course. Um, obviously, as, you, as people do when the, I guess when they when they get when they don't make it, and that's where I was where I was wanting to end up. And I found the rest of the army pretty boring. There was nothing happening then. There's no deployments or anything. So so that was it for me. And I discharged after that. Yeah, actually, for context, what year is this we're talking about? 2003. So I did I did SS selection at the start of 2003. Actually, I did it with uh, Robert Smith, VC, uh, which was interesting. And he was a he was an absolute jet on it course, as you can imagine. And then yeah, that was at the start of 2003. And then I got out soon after that. So it was just before Iraq kicked off, just before we sent our first guys over there. Yeah. So Iraq's looming in the not too distant future and 9-11 is still fresh in your mind and you've not got through this course i can imagine your frustration that you're not really getting to fulfill the childhood dream you had of being hardcore cool special forces soldier so you then pull out what do you go and do well after i discharged i guess i had my discharge in before they actually all the our first guys started to go over there and um you know we're all being told you know it wasn't going to go that for that long and it's probably only going to be one or two deployments uh, all that kind of stuff mate as they tell you initially um so i got out mate and i did a did a number of different jobs that uh, weren't particularly um i guess weren't particularly cool i mean they were they were solid solid jobs i was a furniture removalist for about three weeks mate which was probably the hardest job i've ever done 
and uh for a number of different reasons <laughs> and um yeah and then I, I worked at a bottle shop a couple of different odds and ends jobs there and then uh i was doing a lot of jiu-jitsu at the time and my good mate uh, my coach really dan higgins i was working at australia zoo and then uh, he got me a job there so that's when i started working at australia zoo and looking after steve earl and, and the family so that was in 2004 so when you say looking after, you mean like personal security detail? Or? Yeah, yeah. So you start doing, I guess, the basic ground security or perimeter security. And then um, you know, a few of us managed to move in and, and um, I guess go up a couple of rungs and were able to look after Steve and look after the family. So we'd look after um, Bindi. Yeah, around the zoo, and then look after Steve when he whenever he would come out um, of the zoo and, and walk around, and, and we were sort of uh, tasked with looking after him, mate, and also Robert as well. Robert Robert was only um, infant baby at that stage. What was that like? Oh, mate, it was great. You know, we you know Steve was actually doing a lot of jujitsu at the time, so which uh, was really great for him. You know, he was I think he was in his forties at that stage. He had quite a few injuries. His knees were shot, so he wasn't doing other things he loved like surfing and, and sort of getting out in the jet ski as much as he wanted to. So jiu-jitsu was really great for him, mate. And, and as you can imagine, he was he was a weapon. He was extremely strong and uh, very aggressive, <laughs> always wanted to win. We had different mats set up in, in different sort of houses that he had within the compound of Australia Zoo. Yeah, you must have felt like a stand-in for a croc sometimes. Yeah, mate, he was, he was ridiculously strong. I mean, technically, I, I, I was better. Um, than him but but he was ridiculously strong and uh he used to wrestle hard mate well i mean he put he put my head through one of the um jip rock walls one time um which is <laughs> which was which is all part of the game mate and um was, was really great stuff and he was just a champion of a bloke as you can imagine he was exactly what you saw on tv that's what i tell people is exactly what you saw you know he was either going at 100 miles an hour or he was in bed asleep not that he slept a great deal he just had so much energy mate and he, he was true to his word you know he was just a really really top bloke and you would have been in a when you would have heard of his passing i imagine yeah ashes in the states for a while yeah i was in between contracts from iraq but yeah yeah very very um very sad sad time mate well let's talk about iraq you do get to have a middle east deployment just not with the army that's right yep i was working at australia zoo i probably only was there for maybe six months one of my friends who was i guess a uh, new new a number of different people and, and this is the trick to getting into iraq at that time because i didn't have any deployments they were looking at guys that had sort of prior deployment history and experience and, and that wasn't me but i, I managed to uh get involved because one of my uh, friends was involved in this company that was being set up called uh, blp and they they secured a, a quite a large contract over in iraq training iraqi police at one of the police colleges down to the southeast which was a place called um, like a lot of the contracts over there, they people bid for the contracts, get the contracts, but they don't they don't actually have the guys ready yet. So um, there's a mad rush to to um, fill the slots, and because uh, I knew my mate, I managed to get a get a spot over there. So I went over there in October 2004, and we went to the yeah Numenia training the um, police cadets. Talk me through a bit more about your time in Iraq. How do you find? Dealing with the public sentiment towards what became an increasingly unpopular war. Mate, I was 24 years old. I was getting paid 500 bucks US a day, which which was actually about 700 dollars Australian. So I didn't. You were happy. <laughs> I didn't give a shit about what anyone thought about back home, mate. Uh, I was just having a great time. Iraq for me was was awesome, mate. Uh, and a lot of contractors will say the same thing. You know, you're young. Uh, I didn't have any commitments. I didn't. Ha- yeah, I didn't have any commitments, mate. I didn't have a girlfriend, wife, family, nothing. So I was just having a great time over there and and the job itself was great mate it was um challenging i wouldn't say rewarding 
Uh, but it was it was challenging, and I was with my mates. We, we were working in close contact with um, the Americans with a company called EODT, which were securing the base. Got to hang out with um, a number of different military from different countries. You know, there were Ukrainians there. There was Polish guys there. Yeah, and it was great, mate. I had a great time. So that that was oh, I did that contract for initially for about three three or four months, and then I actually transferred over to that that American company called EODT, and then I I went back home, and and when I came back, I did another couple of tours with them, ranging from or a couple of stints, I guess you can call them, ranging from three to six months. And then I was around a few other places. I was Baghdad at the actual Baghdad Police College, uh, or right beside it, securing a, an American uh, fob. And then I was up at about twenty five minutes north for Baghdad at Taji, which was a really great experience. It's a huge base and we were securing the they had the the coalition side and they had the local side and, and our job was to secure the local side and that was an awesome time mate we, we had we had a bar set up and uh the americans or the american soldiers couldn't drink on their side and neither could the aussie guys so we would invite them over you know making sure it was all hush hush and invite them for a drink and and play poker all the time mate you know they had really brilliant state-of-the-art gyms that were set up that Arnold Schwarzenegger donated all the equipment to there were Friday night fights mate I went in a couple of Friday night boxing fights where they would interview you and uh, record the whole thing and there was thousands of people in the crowd mate salsa nights all this kind of stuff so Taji was was uh, probably my best experience and I, 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 uh, I spent six months there how'd you go in the ring one and one I went the distance with one guy African-American dude who uh who hit really hard and uh, he got me in the he um he won on points and then the next one I knocked the guy out so it was pretty good. Talk me through your journey back to the army then. Yeah, so I could have stayed over there, could have kept going, but I, I guess I always had that drive, always had that that sort of deep desire to find out if I if I was still if I could make SF. Didn't feel like I'd I'd sort of set that behind me or closed that chapter because um while I did withdraw I I picked up a de- decent injury on the course so you know I didn't just withdraw because I'd had enough I was lagging behind and, and not keeping up so that was part of the reason and um to be honest I was only 22 at the time so I was probably a bit young thinking about it now I probably wasn't mentally um or, or physically as mature as I could have been um so I always had that desire to, to try it again and that's what I did mate I, I left Iraq purely for that reason to come back and, and have an another crack so you re-enlist and how long until you start the commando selection and training course uh, i just purposely joined reserves i was gonna i was gonna have another go at sas but then one of my schoolmates was i found out was in commandos and i had a chat to him and I ended up chatting to a couple of guys that i that i knew i eventually found out that were down there and, and and they were telling me how good it was and um you know giving me all the pros for commandos and, and saying how um you know the roles that they were they were doing over there and, and i guess how much action that they were, they were getting and the training and, and the pay and all this kind of stuff and i just thought well i'm going to go that route i joined uh back up for reserves mate if i failed i didn't want being stuck in the army for another four years actually because it was either it was either going to be sf or, or nothing very tactical well sf training is infamous talk me through your experience it's bloody tough it's obviously tough for a reason they're looking for a certain person with a certain number of certain attributes and traits not so much a personality there's there's plenty of different personalities i think within sf a lot of people get the idea that sf are all you know big tough alpha males um, and that's simply not the case there's a number of different personality types within the unit but generally the traits are the same you know toughness maturity self-discipline being self-motivated those kind of things mate that that really separate the people who make it compared with the ones who don't it's pretty brutal um that's what designed for and i think the in that selection process yourself i mean the the mates that you make throughout that you, you know you probably always find that even the time that you do within the unit 
um, you generally get posted to the same company as the guys that you do selection with. So you've all you've got that really tight bond with those guys that you go through selection with. But interesting enough, as as hard as uh, as selection was, you know, you, you're setting the benchmark. You know, most of the time, um, selection is harder is the hardest thing that everyone anyone's ever done, right? But then you actually start the training and the reinforcement cycle, and uh, which is tough. But probably what's tougher is the actual deployments overseas because you've got a number of different elements and other factors that add to the to the stress and obviously the danger and the experience and and what you physically have to do so selection is is hard and it's awesome in, in getting the right people and it definitely um makes you question yourself and whether you're tough enough and whether you can do it but really mate like and i've heard this before you know really uh and i wasn't sure if i believed it but it's really the start you know and and the unit and the training and deployments are probably tougher but you don't know that at the time though when you're facing it it looks like the biggest obstacle in the world it is yeah, for most people it is, yeah. It, it absolutely is. And you've had a rocky path to get here, though. It's not like you've had you've joined the Army and it's you've loved it and had a good experience and then you're moving on to this. You've sort of dipped in and out. And I know this has been your goal for a long time, but given you've sort of had, to this point, a checkered relationship with the military, how do you personally, like, how do you draw upon that inner strength to keep pushing? You might have had, you know, not slept in hours and hours and hours and you're having to do long pack marches or lift heavy gear around or just do some pointless drills because some DS tells you to. Yeah, I think the, the further along that you get in the course, you just have to have to have the motivation initially to get through because the longer you actually go in the course, the less people withdraw on, uh, you know, discharge on request or withdraw on, on own request because um, the more you get in and the closer you get to the end, you actually don't get a lot of people that withdraw. They get what they call bozzed off. So they do a board of studies every week and, and they, they sort of uh, release or, or kick off or return to unit those that aren't, aren't suitable. But, yeah, you, as you go along the course, as, as tough as it is and as you as you do your second and third night without sleep and you kind of think, how, how am I going to do this? It's not so much about quitting, but you, you kind of have the, the mentality, how, how am I actually going to get through this? How you try and kind of process that and that's really all about coming down to what I, what do I have to do right now? You know, what what are the tasks that I've been given and what and how am I going to complete that rather than looking too, too far into the future? But, yeah, it's interesting, mate. You don't get a lot of guys as you get closer towards the end that actually pull a pin on their own you can see that light at the end of the tunnel and you're not going to be pulled off now that's right because you, you've actually once you're kind of 30 days 32 33 days into into a selection course it's a little bit different now but when i did it was it was that kind of uh, time length and that kind of setup and you get you're actually drawing a, a lot of uh energy i guess from your mates you know you, you're building that bond and, and you kind of don't want to leave them at the same time so it's, it's almost uh, really is a team effort towards the end you start as individuals but the further you get in and the closer you build those relationships with your mates the, the less likely you want to leave and the less likely that they are, that your mates are going to let you leave and that's why we have the language of brothers in arms later you're forged in combat but you're starting right from you know this foundation back home of just this rigorous training you're going through together and that bonds you yeah absolutely mate you're already bonded by the time you're being deployed and you're fighting the enemy you're already tight-knit group for sure so when do you finally make it through and are in second commander regiment what year 2008 so i did the course started i did the course at the start of 2008 and when's your first deployment start 2009 I think the, from memory, there was there was about 170 that started the entry test. There was a, around 100 that started selection. There was 26 of us that finished. There was 23 that passed. And obviously, um, it sucks for the three that finished but didn't pass. 
And uh, then we started the reinforcement cycle. I think there was about 15 of us that finally got our berets at the end. Most of us went to the the same company and we finished Rio towards the end of 2008. And then we started to do our pre-deployment training and all that stuff in uh, towards the end of 2008, 2009. And we went over 2009 in late February, early March 2009. Yeah, that's quite a journey and those numbers, they're not surprising, but they're still staggering in that uh, you go through all that selection and lose so many. That's a great level of attrition. But like you say, you finish that 30 plus day course and then you've got the long circuit of the reinforcement cycle and to still be losing people at that stage, I can you know imagine that's really uh, hard for those guys but you want a 15 to get your berets so yeah let's jump to afghanistan you deploy over there as you've just said in 2009 as an operator what was your initial impression of the country initially it was it was cold it was coming out of winter so it was yeah springtime it was a lot of rain at, at that point i guess the elevation hit you a little bit as well because um the base at tk is about 1500 meters above sea level so you, you actually have to get take quite a bit of time to get used to that and acclimatize my first army deployment or military deployment but it wasn't you know i'd been to to iraq but completely different you know iraq was a lot more infrastructure in place and the places that i went to the setup was it was a lot better i suppose and and it was a lot more i guess country or rural areas that we went to when we were in uh, afghan and then we got into training and uh, it were all it was vehicle roles for that stage so the whole deployment was in vehicles uh, we didn't we didn't use um choppers i think one of the platoons might use chopper once for a mission but uh, personally i didn't and it, and it was all vehicle movement our first patrol actually the very first time we we left the base we went outside the wire went for not quite a month it was something like 20 over three weeks 24 25 days something like that See, let's talk through some of those patrols. Second Commander Regiment has the reputation of, you know, as the door kickers, that kind of thing. How often are you going out just patrolling and surveying the ground and seeing what comes your way versus you have a specific target you're approaching and need to engage? Yeah, we had different night type missions, didn't we? We had, uh, I guess, key leadership engagements where we we would go down and and just see, um, you know, get in contact with the locals and try and help them out and provide them with first aid and the like and, you know, the whole hearts and minds idea. Other times we would go into, you know, have a specific mission or, or a specific area that we wanted to go into and, and uh, that was known Taliban area or previously had, had been and, and we would go in there and, and uh, we would do specific disruption ops or we would go and, and clear clear the village and um, basically see 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 what happens. Gather intel and, and talk to the locals and and uh, see if we can identify if the Taliban are still there or the presence that, that they kind of have. So there's a few different missions and then and other missions on my second rotation was more was about I guess dropping into into an area with a big commando group and, and really just in in the badlands I suppose of, of Helmand Province and and seeing what what would uh, would eventuate. And a lot of times the the bad guys dudes would come out and start playing. And then other times it was specifically. To to go into um, areas that were making drugs and um, you know destroy those um, facilities. Now we're not going to talk on specific tactics or operating procedures for operational security reasons, but let's give listeners a couple of anecdotes to give them an idea of the work you're doing over there. Talk me through one of those times the bad guys came out to play. Uh, so, so one, uh, like I said, on the first deployment, we 
it was all vehicles and, and that first um, that that first mission that we went on was over three weeks out specifically our mission was to to take heat off um, the Brits that were ripping out so they had one unit that was leaving um, around the Kajak Jackie Dam area and then one another unit that was coming in so we came in from the north and uh, we sort of took the heat off them for two or three days I think we were there for about three days and Kajaki was sort of a, a real real known hotspot for the Taliban and on the way around there we actually kilometers wise it wasn't a lot of kilometers that we traveled but it actually took us something like three or four days to get there and, and we wouldn't have traveled 40 kilometers we, it was really slow there was a lot of IEDs on the road there were certain parts that where we were going through that were sort of we had to only use we could only use one road and we found about nine IEDs on one road and that's that's actually when Brett Till was killed so we we um, we continued through there and came down through um, Kajaki Dam area and and we, we contacted the enemy and we we didn't we had a couple of contacts with the enemy through um, uh, sort of really small engagements where they would sort of pot shot at us um, on the way to to Kajaki Dam and and the big engagements were once we got there and, and we didn't get within. 400 meters of it of sort of the the actual um homesteads before everything kicked off and um for those three days it, it was pretty full-on we would sort of go in there mid-morning and uh we would engage them for anywhere from i guess four or five or six hours and uh we had a lot of rounds going down range we had a few rounds coming back we dumped a lot of ordnance on that area as well and uh the figures that were or the damage that we did or we caused were pretty significant and, and that sort of yeah that took a lot of heat off the rip that was uh happening between the um the two british units in that same mission that was where um damo damon tomlinson lost his legs so we were talking earlier about the selection course and how that's the toughest thing in the world at that time. And then once you get out to deployments and it's real, it gets that much harder. And you were just talking then, you know, five to six hours out in a contact and that incredible adrenaline, that fear and just the fact it's real bullets flying at you. How did you adjust your psyche those first few contacts what was it like well i guess anticipation is the worst part right and i've talked to a lot of guys about this as well and we got we kind of all talked to each other about it and it's the anticipation that it's probably um the worst part in regards to you know your anxiety levels but actually once it kicks off it's not it's not too bad you don't really get time to think about that you're just doing your job hence why stress inoculation is so important and really accurate accurate training back home is so important and we're pretty good we're really good at doing that uh, we're really good at training to to make it as realistic as possible which is why you you can sometimes have um incidences or accidents and deaths as a result of that training but you're really well prepared uh, for going over there so like i said the, the anticipation is probably the worst part once it kicks off you're just doing your job but i remember when i was in army cadets and, and even go through and train the army though all the throwaway line would be okay there's a lull in the battle you know refurb your equipment pick up your, your magazine pouches all that kind of stuff and 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 uh you don't give too much thought to it or, or you kind of think how is that possible but that's exactly what happens you know you don't you're not in tick or you're not, you know, troops in contact and engaging with the enemy the whole time. We weren't, in my experience. Um, it wasn't as if rounds were going off for six hours. It would be ebbs and flow of the battle, right? So it would be initial contact, and then it would have a be a lull, and then um, you know it would start up again. It was that kind of rotation as the day went along. And I think you you uh, you get used to that to a certain element, and you you have to calm yourself down you can't operate you know stressed out of your brain for for six hours because um you would find that really tough so you start to employ tools to keep yourself calm and keep yourself focused and that's really narrowing your focus on, on what you need to do right now and that's that's why so you know you drill things so many times in training 
yeah, you've got to constantly switch gears and that you're in the firefight right now and you're engaged with that and then you also know when to, well, relax almost or at least get ready and you're alert. I'm not saying you're relaxing properly, but you're alert and you're slowing it down one moment so you can be ready for when it kicks off again. Yeah, no, you're right. You don't relax to, to a normal stage if I'm sitting around having a coffee, but you relax off that that heightened state of uh, awareness or that heightened stress level you, you definitely tone it down a little bit and that comes back into the training but you always have something to do you know generally you're not just sitting there um you know with nothing to do and, and uh with idle hands you know there's always something to do there's always something to to check and and uh procedures to enact and 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 arcs to scan all that kind of stuff you know passing information battlefield commentary especially i was in sniper so there's always there's always that kind of thing there's always something to do to keep you engaged and obviously there's always a threat of the enemy that sounds like all the training you have obviously pays off and it gives you that professionalism and that focus, but you can't train for everything. I'm looking at a picture on your Instagram where you're walking a target off after a raid. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. I do. What happened that day for the listener's benefit? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, I guess the... the there's a lot of you know it's not it's not all uh, contacting the enemy and 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 being uh, I guess scared and anxious and um, having a hell of added stress levels. There's there's a there's a lot of, of humorous times over there and, and humorous occasions and just out, downright funny occasions. And on that particular mission, uh, we we went in um, as we mostly did 90 percent of the time. We would go in at night and we had a village to to clear. And then we, we did that and we parked or what they, what they called prisoner under consignment. So we, we, we had a number of fighting age males that, that we deemed um, deemed worth taking off target and um, taking them back to the vehicles and then I'd try and identify them further and going through our procedures. And um, we found a number of different uh, weapons and one of those was a, was a recoilless rifle. And um, so we had, all the, we had all the fighting age males in constraints and then we were taking them off target and uh, there was a big river. To, oh, it wasn't a big river, but it was, it was flowing a, decent amount uh well the strength was was quite reasonably intense um not a deep river but so we were, we were crossing the river and my um my team leader had was carrying the recoilless rifle and, as we, and he was quite heavy and, and obviously carrying over, over rocks and stumbling over rocks and, and the speed of the river and he um he, he ended up falling in and what was interesting is that we we all sort of uh we all sort of uh i wouldn't say broke down or we sort of had all our outbursts in laughter when that happened and, and we looked around and, and all the all the fighting age males, all, all our pucks that, that we had in constraints, like they all broke out laughing at the same time, which is hilarious because, you know, we I guess we came in, come in at the middle of the night and we woken them up and they knew maybe they were in trouble, maybe maybe they weren't. And uh, it was just it was just a really one of those moments, I guess, in war that everyone just finds funny, and uh, it, it was kind. It was a it was an extremely um, humorous situation, and the one that you wouldn't expect to happen, with, particularly with these with these uh, with these guys that we were taking out of the home and, and taking on on you know a decent walk, four or five kilometer walk away from their away from their family, but um, you know one of the times that they certainly found it funny as well. Talk to me about life back on base in between all the patrols and the missions, day-to-day routine and your downtime and how do you fill the day? Mate, it was great. Like I, I loved it over there. That's that's the thing about I guess being deployed is that a, a lot of your drama. And I was single um, for my first deployment, all my trips to Iraq, and and uh, my first trip to Afghanistan. I was single, mate, so I didn't have anyone to ring. I mean, I rang my parents every so often, and I was a digger at the same time, like a, a private. So I, I I didn't have the necessary responsibilities of of the the NCOs, and certainly not the officers. So uh, I, I was I was in the gym 
we had a great setup over there. We had internet access. There was all kinds of video games. We had terabytes of data, entertainment data that we had access to. So there was there was uh, a lot, mate, a lot of gym time, a lot of uh, watching uh, movies and series and all that kind of stuff, and um, and hanging around, hanging around with the boys, and, and generally and generally enjoying it. Actually, like it was good time. I, I liked it because there's no there's no the outside pressure, or the normal pressure of the normal world. And I guess a lot of people might be surprised to hear that or understand that but for me in particular because i didn't have a family and everything i, I had a great time over there it was you know if you're not getting shot at like you, you're having a, you're having a great day and uh you know there was that the little coffee stores over the other side of the base that we would go and visit and uh, a lot of the boys trained so we would do some jiu-jitsu or boxing or kickboxing and throw around weights and, and everything like that mate so yeah it was a good time let's jump to your second deployment to afghanistan when is it that was in July 2011. Okay, so what was going on for you between those deployments in 2010 was training and that kind of thing? Yeah, so we were on TAG for a year. I was on TAG and once we got back in, uh, when did we get back? Like August 2009, something like that. Uh, yeah, we did. We trained up for, for the tactical assault group and then we went on team in, in 2010 and we did that for a year and that was a, that was a really great job. I, lo- I love that job. It was, I guess, long hours and a lot of training, but you really got good at your job and your skills you know, went to another level in regards to uh, the domestic counterterrorism side. So that was a really, really great job, mate. And then uh, the end of 2010 is when I did my sniper course, went to sniper teams and, and uh, did all our lead-up training and all our mission rehearsal exercises at the start of 2011. Um, and then we were deployed in around, I think it was July 2011. Tell me more about the sniper course. Yeah, sniper course is hard, mate. I say the, the two hardest courses in SF were the, the Advanced Close Quarter Battle course and uh, the sniper course for different reasons. But, you know, you're certainly under the pump. There's a, there's, there's a lot to learn. Getting tested immediately, I think you have about a week of weapons training uh, or three or four, three days of um, a lot of firing and then you're testing. Um, and, and, I, and and that was, uh, I, was never, I was never actually a great shot. And what's interesting about being a sniper, um, you know, you think there's all these kind of black arts or, or hidden sniper talents, uh, shooting techniques that they're going to show you, but really it comes down to the basics, like the basic uh, marksmanship principles and, and sort of really hone in on, on those and there's a few other tips and, and techniques out there but but that was the, the core the core parts of it so it was really just narrowing down on that and um yeah i had a little bit of trouble with that but got through and then uh the other real hard part of it is the stalks on the sniper course and a stalk is where you get dropped off and you have a you have your map and you have an area that you have to go into and, and um find the bad dude uh, and you basically have to set up your position without being seen you have a number of things that you have to do you have to Find him, identify him, set up your position to make sure that you you'll, you will be actually able to engage. So you've got to have your bore um, and your line of fire needs to be clear because you actually fire it live after they replace the, the live guy out there that's uh, looking for you uh, with with a dummy. And that's that's a hard hard component because you you have to once you set up your position um, and and you've ranged to target and you've put all your dials correctly on on your weapon, then you have to actually fire a blank round and then the spotter moves to with. 10 meters of your location and then while the observer who is sitting in the chair 
that you're that you're you're eventually going to uh, engage when they replace him. Um, he's looking right in your your direction because the the spotter is telling him where you are within ten meters. If he can't see you, then the the spotter points to his left or right to identify exactly where you are. And then if he still can't see you, then you you fire your second blank round. And if he still can't see you, then you've passed that stage. And so they do that for everyone who finds the target and sets up the position and who hasn't been seen. And then they replace the the, the, the observer with um, a dummy. And then you have to fire fire actually live fire and hit the target to pass that scenario. That's one of the hardest uh, components within the sniper course to pass. And I actually failed my my all three practice stalks so i was in a little bit of trouble confidence was down uh but then i ended up passing um all four my, my actual uh, assessment stalks and there was only actually two of us that, that did that so i was pretty happy with that i think you should be because let's see what you've covered there you have to have a handle on the weapons and all the those finer shooting principles a um, bit of physics you need to be able to do an absolute top quality stealth and be unseen. And I imagine you have this already. You have to have a bloody good degree of patience as well being a sniper. So you've got to work all these elements to truly hone that craft. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think from memory it was obviously everyone on the course is a, is a fully qualified commando and the pass rate was about 50%. So it's, it's, it's reasonably tough um, but, and it, it certainly feels good in passing that course. And like I said, that, that in the advanced close quarter battle course are probably the two two hardest courses that, that I did in the army. You mentioned that you uh, weren't a great shot though. What inspired you to go down this path and do that course? I wasn't that I was, uh, yeah, I was I guess I, I wouldn't say I was in the, the top 1% of, of uh, marksmen, but really being a sniper and doing the, the job as a sniper, shooting is actually uh, only one small component of being a sniper. You know, there's, there's all the intelligence gathering, there's all the recon, there's all the battlefield commentary. Um, so your time that you're actually doing the job and engaging the enemy and actually firing your weapon is, is a really small part of it. And I was going to say, you said the phrase, not a good shot, but I think that's misleading because you're a commando. So I think that's probably relative to that 1% you were Yeah, describing. yeah. I mean, yeah, in reason, yeah. <laughs> So you were an operator in your first deployment, part of the assault team, that kind of thing. Besides the fact you're working with a different crew this time, what are some of the different tasks you're doing? How have your roles and responsibilities changed? It was a lot different and it wasn't just different because first appointment was assaulting and, and the next appointment was I was a sniper, but it was all via helicopter. So we would be inserted and extracted via helicopter, which was definitely a different spin. We could go further, get a lot more missions done. In, in a lot more timely manner and go to areas that we could we just couldn't go to when we had to we had to use vehicles so that that was a, certainly a lot different as a part of the sniper team operating in sort of small smaller group obviously a lot smaller than than a platoon size or company size a group of assaulters we would go in at different times sometimes we would go in with the assaulters often we wouldn't and we would do sort of uh, what people would imagine the normal snipering work is um, or that kind of job role where we, we would set up positions in, in overwatch in, in our different elements and, and uh, you know, feedback information and identify the, the pattern of life, or what they call the pattern of life. And um, when the assaulters w- would come in, then we would pass back the battlefield commentary about exactly what was happening and then obviously um, engage the threat when required. Well, Reese, we can imagine from the movies what exactly a sniper does, but I want to hear it from a sniper himself. Talk me through one of your missions. 
the one of the most memorable missions that we had was um, in a certain place that we uh, we actually went in this time with the the assault group. We were the the sniper team or the sniper element attached to the platoon on that stage, and, and we 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 dropped in. We were we were being um, inserted by helicopter, as I previously discussed, and uh, that were the MI-17, the Russian helicopters, and they're actually all flown by um, by American uh, Vietnam veterans, which was uh, interesting. Really great pilots, and uh, they're really sturdy, sturdy helicopters, and we. We had two missions that were supposed to complete that day. We got set down in in this area, and from the moment we set down, it, it kind of just it just went from there. Well, I think we were on the ground for ten or twenty minutes, and and as our sniper element, we'd moved off in front of the the assault force to establish our position, and it, it wouldn't have been twenty minutes, and then it, it really kicked off. We had a, a couple of DEA guys with us, the American Drug Enforcement Agency guys that we were working with, and we did a lot of work with them in that rotation, see finding all the drugs and, and and destroying them. And that particular time, we were going into this area to obviously see what was happening in, in relation to the Taliban presence on the ground and, and uh, also um, how much drugs or, or what kind of uh, drugs that they had on the ground and how well established that was. So we dropped in this area and it kicked off immediately and that was one of the times, uh, I guess, where there was still, it was ebbs and flows, but there was, it seemed to be um, shooting because we were split up throughout the town, either end of the town, um, and there was actually, it seemed like to be shooting constantly, even even a few rounds every, every now and again. And we had the helicopter support, so they Patches would come come in and um, would dump all the ammunition and then and then have to go back and, and either refuel or um, reload with ammunition. So that was pretty full on. What sort of stood out that day is we had this this big DEA agent and he, he was a monster. He was in the bodybuilding. He went in a lot of competitions and um, early on in the day he he actually got skimmed by a round on his shoulder. And I remember running past him and, and chatting to him for a few seconds and he was saying uh, you know how lucky he was and you know it was pretty close call. We continued on and we, we did our sort of calling and, and, and I was searching the area and, and stayed there for a few hours and got in a lot of contacts and then uh, cleared as much as we could or what we need to clear. And then we, we brought the choppers in. And that was probably the most hectic time that I've ever been extracted. There was a lot of rounds going off because it was during the day. Obviously, the, the Taliban knew exactly where we were and they knew exactly where the choppers were landing. There was a lot of dust. Everyone had to try and find the right chopper. I mean, one guy's radio antenna got shot off. Guys had holes in their bits of equipment, but no, actually nobody else got shot. It was very strange, a um, lot of confusion. All managed to get on the chopper. The only person that got shot was that DAA agent. He got shot a second time. Wow. And he was the only guy that got shot on the day. He got shot twice, but this time he got shot uh, in the head and it sort of hit him on an angle and it didn't penetrate his skull, but sort of hit the, the front of his forehead and went round inside of his helmet and, and came out the other side. So it didn't really penetrate his skull. And initially he was kind of okay, but the guys that had to drag him, he was over 100 kilos, would have been 110, 115 kilos. I mean, his arms were as big as my legs. He was, he was a monster. Uh, initially he was okay, but uh, because of the impact, he started to go downhill. He survived, but he, he ended up losing his sight as a result of that. Heavy, heavy contact. I remember hearing the pings of, of the rounds hitting the choppers. Um, it was, you know, ping, 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 every sort of kind of couple of seconds. And then we actually couldn't go and do the next job that afternoon because, uh, or straight away, we were going to be flying to another another area to do another job. But the helicopters were that damaged that we had to go, had to go back to base and they were all grounded. So gives you an insight into the toughness of those choppers, actually, and the ability of those uh, ex-Vietnam pilots. And that's fascinating about the ex-Vietnam pilots. I wouldn't have thought that was common, that you'd have Vietnam vets doing a lot of active combat service in Afghanistan. Yeah, I guess with the, with the, uh, with the limits of the American military and obviously how, how long that they've been in deployments and, and operating on sort of a couple of different fronts in the Middle East, 
that's what they that's what they do, and that, and that's why all, that's why we got deployed as contractors in Iraq. You know, it was the American government being able to say or not having to rely on their soldiers for a number of different reasons and political reasons as well, and giving soldiers uh, a break from deployments. A lot of these guys were deployed for 12, 15, 18 months, like crazy, and then they'd go home for 12 months and then be deployed again. I spoke to a number of guys on that front, which is probably why a lot of them, uh, you know, the guys suffering from PTSD is, is so dramatically high, particularly over there, you know, once they're being deployed for so long. But that's why the contracting uh, people out the contracting scenario comes up but for those reasons that I said and, and that's why people jump on it and these guys are really great and they love they love doing the job role over there and they're really good at it. I have heard that the US deployment lengths can be so much longer than ours and I can only speculate how burned out that can leave them as well. I think from the sounds of it talking to more Australian veterans that our ratio sounds a bit more manageable for our guys on the ground. I mean your first one was Feb to August you said and how long was this one? Yeah, so my second one was about four, four and a half months. Yeah, and I imagine that felt like a good length to you, or did you want longer? Um, no, 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 I mean that was pretty good for me, for me at that stage. Um, the first deployment, I probably would have gone, I probably would have gone longer, but I was pretty comfortable coming coming home uh, after that stage. But yeah, I mean, yeah, some of some of the Americans, um, like the Green Braves that we work with over there, you know, they were there for twelve months. A lot of the Navy SEALs only did uh, six months, which is, and a lot of I think the the CAG guys or the Delta Force guys were were doing about the same time. Yeah, the Green Braves and a, and a lot of the, the regular military guys were, were doing a lot longer than that. Uh, and these guys were, were being deployed into some pretty gnarly areas. Hence, um, some of the documentaries that are out there that people are aware of, guys being in these areas for, for 12 months and, and in contact every day, i.e. Um, Restrepo. And no wonder these guys are suffering, mate, because you can, you can only be exposed to, to that kind of environment, have those kind of high stress levels for so long before you, know, you really change the chemical makeup in your brain. I can only imagine. Thank you for sharing that contact story. I think that also will be insightful for some civilian listeners that just because you're a sniper, that doesn't mean you're a safe distance away from the action. You can still be in the thick of it. Well, absolutely, and and that that particular time we we're actually on the ground in in the village with with the other assaulters. But but other times we um you know we we were in contact um up in the hills you know eight hundred meters a thousand uh, a thousand meters away, and you're still getting uh, depending on the scenario and depending on your job role. Sometimes you you get exposed, and you know it's a two way range then. And and if they see where you are, yeah yeah you're digging in with your eyelids and 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 getting as close to the ground as possible. You were single in your first deployment. Did you have someone back home waiting for you in your second? Yeah, I did. How was that being in a relationship while being away? Was that difficult or were you just so focused on what you were doing? No, I didn't like it, to be honest. I did three trips to Iraq. Um, I was in Iraq probably 13 or 14 months in total in country. Um, and my first trip to Afghanistan was fine. But yeah, that was the first time that I sort of had had a relationship going when I was deployed. And yeah, I certainly didn't like it. I know some guys, are, even some guys are saying to me it, it was better. They enjoyed it better with, with a relationship. But um, I certainly didn't enjoy it, mate, because you've got all those things going on in, in your head on, on how they would feel if you, know, you got um, injured or killed over there. And that was just adding to the pressure, I suppose adding to the stress level. So I certainly didn't enjoy it as much as I did when I was single. Well, you got out in 2013. What led you to discharging for a final time? I just felt, I probably felt like I'd completed what I I wanted to in the military. By that stage, I'd done uh, around 10 years full-time and um, I got to be deployed as an assaulter, as a sniper. I did my my year on tag. So I felt like I'd sort of done what I wanted to and thought it was time to move on. Well, what have you moved on to? What have you been doing since? Um, so I had um, a gym for a while, 
when I first got out, I actually got my helicopter license. So I was got my commercial helicopter license, and I was going to do that as a job. Actually, that was my big plan. Spent probably sixty grand on getting a license, and uh, I couldn't get a job at that stage. It was quite quite hard to get a job. Well, I found it impossible actually to get a job, <laughs> and then um, worked out I probably couldn't afford it anyway because if I was to have to go out out bush and work in these these areas, um, you kind of the wage is really really low. And my wife was doing a midwifery course, so it, it financially wasn't viable. So um, yeah, I didn't go that path. I almost went back to Afghanistan contracting. I didn't choose that, and then I ended up getting into what I'm doing now with um, with my company, Operator Edge. Tell me more about Operator Edge. Uh, so it's basically the main thing I teach is mental toughness. So I have a mindset course that people go through. I obviously have a lot of military guys and or people want to go into the military and go SF, but I actually do have more civilians that do the course, which is surprising or certainly a surprise to me. Yeah, and, and it's really just, just me setting up a course and, and analyzing what I went through and, and how lessons learned in regards to, to getting the right mindset and, and getting mentally tougher and applying that to, to uh, working out what you want and working out how to get, get it and, and keeping on, on track until you complete that mission. And that's what I pass on now. Well, I can see civilians getting a lot out of that too, because that might be to a corporate line of work, or it might be something to do with their family or their own just uh, other sporting goals or range of things. It's not just military applicable. No, and I think a lot of civilians who have an appreciation of the military and, and understand that the military is tougher and, and the mindset you have to have and, and what you have to endure to get in, particularly into SF. So a lot of people respect that, even though they don't are never going to join and probably never wanted to join, but they certainly have that the respect um, for the military. And you're right, mate, mindset's applied to anything. The strategies and the tactics in regards to getting mentally tougher are applicable in any field. And where can listeners look up your company? I say in search uh, Facebook, uh, Operator Edge, or, or then go to um, OperatorEdge.com, mate. And my Instagram, I have an Instagram account, uh, but it's under my name, Reese underscore Dowden. Now, Reese, you've obviously made you know a productive transition. You've set up a company. You've got yourself a life direction, and you're moving along that path. Leaving the forces and life after service, though, it can be tough for a lot of veterans, and we touched on that in regards to your US counterparts, but the same is true for Aussie servicemen and servicewomen. And whether veterans, they serve for a couple of years or longer, you're in that point, the end of the spear, and you are facing that high-stress environment that you've described. In your experience and those you've witnessed of your mates, how do you feel you and your fellow commandos have found life after taking off the uniform? Oh, I mean, some, some have done really well. A lot of guys I know that have transitioned really well. And other guys haven't transitioned very well at all. So it, it really depends, mate. Like I said, there's no one personality in commandos or in the military. And it, it just on, I guess, there's a few factors uh, that, that help depending on if you're injured, depending on if you're going through any kind of um, mental illness or mental hardship, particularly obviously PTSD or depression or anxiety or any kind of thing like that, mate, it makes it hard. I don't have any of that. It's certainly a tough transition when you initially come back from a deployment, but I settled down fine because I've done it a few times with Iraq as well. And I think that what to make what makes a difference is or one of the things I don't I don't didn't really identify myself or, or define myself as a soldier, I suppose. I was doing that as a job role, but I certainly didn't see myself as that person or, or identify myself as that kind of job role and that individual forever. It was just the role that I was doing at the time, and I enjoyed it. And um, uh, it was time to – once I got out, it was just time to do something else. So I just reinvented myself a couple of times and, and I always have a, had a specific goal, especially online. It's um, starting your own business. Any kind of business is, is really hard. And, and online, it took me really three or four years just to get the marketing down pat. So I always had something that I was really driving for and, and, and I guess a purpose. 
to go after. And, and I think guys will struggle if they don't have that when you kind of don't really, you're in a bit of limbo and, and you're only identifying um, with what you were rather than what you are now and what you're going to be. And that's obviously different for individuals, but I just found that because I had something specific I needed to go after, I needed to get in relation to finances in particular, you know, I had to make it work because there was nobody else that was going to do that. And I'm the only one that providing for my family. I'm not getting money from anyone else. And that was really a big driver for me. And it's something that I had to really, really push to kind of achieve. I think it's really important to keep in contact with former military mates, particularly blokes have this thing where, and I've heard a number of times, you know, I might ask you, spoken to this person, oh, no, they, they don't ring me, so I don't ring them. That's a real, I think that's a real negative attitude to have. You really have to reach out. And, and I'm really cognizant to, to reach out to my mates and send them a text or give them a phone call just to keep in contact, mate, because people in the military, you're in there, you're in that tight-knit environment for so long and then all of a sudden you're separated. Uh, and that's where people have struggle. You know, they're not going to work every day around the boys and around all these people in, in a group environment. They don't feel like they belong. They don't have that sense of belonging. They don't have a sense of purpose. So you need to find a purpose and, and you need to, you know, be cognizant of the fact that you have to reach out to your mates to keep that connection um, strong. You have that strong connection formed way back in selection. It goes right through all those contacts, all your missions. So yeah, it's essential you keep it going after the dust settles as well. And you mentioned purpose. I think purpose actually so neatly defines the conversation we've had today that you join the military with an absolute sense of purpose i want to become sf and you weren't fulfilling that purpose so you left for a bit and you decided no i'm going to stick to my original goals you join you make it you push through with great resilience and you achieve exactly what you want to achieve with the military and now you're going out there and finding a new purpose you know new career that's satisfying you supports your family yet you're still maintaining that original brotherhood sense of purpose as what you're describing with keeping in touch with your mates yeah, absolutely. Yeah, P- purpose is really important, mate, and yeah, that's what I that's what I try and pass on to people as well. Especially people haven't got a lot of confidence, and and people ask me, you know, how how did you get through, or how did you feel that that you deserved to get through, that you or that you could have got through? And, and I had no sense of uh, that I deserved to be uh, to get be a commando, or that that I that I had any kind of background or any kind of previous form that was going to help me get in. At the end of the stage, you just have to believe it. You getting what you want starts from within yourself. It doesn't matter what anyone else is going to tell you. If you don't believe it, you you won't get it. And conversely, if you believe it, then you're 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 setting yourself up for success, and other things are going to flow from there. You don't have to have uh, any kind of past experience that's, that's necessarily going to set you up, uh, or that you can necessarily draw from, or you have confidence from, or whatever. You just have to start believing it in yourself. Well, Reese, I think people, civilian and military, can learn a lot from you, and I encourage everyone listening to check out your Instagram. You always have a lot of great posts there and the website as well because you keep a blog and detail some of these stories even more than we've touched on today. Appreciate it, Alex. Well, Reese, you've had quite a career and that was only chapter one we've really discussed. I know chapter two is only just beginning, so I look forward to following your success and hearing about what comes next for you. Thank you for your time, for your service and for coming on the show. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. If you liked my conversation with Reese Dowden, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We have a veteran conversation out every Tuesday and bonus episodes on Fridays. Find out more about the podcast and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com and join in the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLPod. 
and check out Reese and Operator Edge at all the places he mentioned during the chat. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>